And I will invite you to open to Matthew chapter 15 for our text today. Matthew 15. So I did something that is going to be a challenge. I'm going to preach part two today of a sermon that actually had a part one three weeks ago. So I know that's probably not the best way to do it, but that's just the way things are. opened up here this past few weeks, and so uh, we're going to look at the second part of this text today. Uh, The theme is true worship versus vain worship, empty worship. Remember that in this text, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is being confronted by a delegation that came to him from the city of Jerusalem. These were scribes, experts in the Old Testament scriptures, supposed experts, I should say, and uh, Pharisees, one of the strictest sects of the Jews who were uh, very concerned with Jesus and his ministry. They disagreed with him. They felt that he was not um, officially sanctioned by them. And uh, they were, after all, the religious experts, and moreover, he was contradicting their traditions. And specifically, they were, he was allowing his disciples to eat their meals without ritual cleansing of their hands. And of course, if you remember from three weeks ago, what he's talking about is not the fact that they didn't wash their hands and so they might have germs. Uh, the Jews were concerned, the Pharisees and the scribes were concerned about ritual purity with God. Ritual purity is just another way to say that you are ceremonially clean. You're in a state, spiritually, where you can enter into God's presence and worship Him. And in the Old Testament, there were certain prescriptions for being ceremonially clean, to enter into the temple and to worship God, to go to the great feasts of Israel and worship the Lord. And one of the uh, traditions that the Jews had of Jesus' day was that you need to wash your hands with clean water before and say a, a certain blessing before you partake of the meal. And The problem with that is that it wasn't a Bible command at all for all Jews to wash their hands before they eat their meals. This was a rabbinical tradition, and so nevertheless, it's very important to these scribes and Pharisees, and they come to Jesus and they say, you're not following the tradition. And so that brings us to the text, and so we're going to start again in verse 1 and read all the way to verse 20. The text will begin in verse 10, but I want you to see the context as well. So if you have a Bible, if you, uh, if you don't have one, there should be one in the chairs around you. It's page 820 in uh, those Bibles. And uh, let's look again at Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. Hear the word of God. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, 
And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father, mother, father or mother shall surely die. But you say, if anyone says, tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, then he need not honor his father. So, Jesus says, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people, verse 10, to him, And Jesus said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. But I want you to notice right off the bat, is the difference between the question and the answer. The question was about what? Washing your hands. And he doesn't get to the answer, the direct answer to their question until verse what? Take a look. Verse 20, the end of the verse. Finally, he says, hand washing's no big deal, right? He says, to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anybody. And in the meantime, he says a lot of other things, right? So what we want to find out is why does he say all of the other stuff? What's the point? What's he... In other words, Jesus is concerned about something deeper, something more fundamental than just addressing their immediate question. Their immediate question needs to be addressed, and he will. But there's something else that's really important. Two things, in fact. Two more fundamental issues. The first, we dealt with three weeks ago, verses 3 through 9. The first major issue is that the scribes and Pharisees have allowed human tradition to trump God's Word. And that is an even deeper issue than the specific issue about whether hand-washing is is, uh, necessary or not. 
They have allowed human tradition to trump God's Word. And let's be honest, that can happen to every one of us if we are not constantly vigilant to re-examine everything that we think, everything that we do, everything that we believe on the basis of God's Word, to keep going back again and again to the touchstone of the Word of God to test everything that we believe, everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we hold to. Almost every one of us, probably I should say every one of us, holds traditions, some sort of traditional way of thinking or behaving that is not completely in line with the Word of God. Now, I don't think if you're a, if you're a true Christian, I don't think you're doing it consciously and, and uh, rebelliously, I mean, in, in active, open rebellion and say, God's Word says this, but I don't care, I want to do something else. If that's true, you're not a Christian. But even as Bible-believing, submitted Christians, there are ways, no doubt, where our lives are still tainted by traditional ways of thinking that we've been inherited from our family or from the broader culture or just from our own sort of sinful nature, our presuppositions that need to be constantly challenged by the Word of God. Amen? All right, so we want to be the kind of people that are intentional about letting the Word of God continually challenge our pre-understanding which means that we need to give ourselves to this text carefully, passage by passage, so that our thinking becomes more informed and more in line with reality. We want to be aware of the importance of continually re-examining everything that we do and think by the Scriptures. We want consciences that are held captive by the Word of God, nothing more, nothing less. Like Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. That's what we want to be. We say in our vision statement that we want to be a people who are continually willing to be changed by the Bible. This is exactly what Jesus is telling them was their problem. They were unwilling to be changed by God's Word. They had held on to their traditions And those traditions had trumped the very Word of God. In fact, the worst thing about this is that it is possible, listen to me, it's possible for religious tradition to actually mask sin and even unbelief, which is exactly what was the case with these scribes and Pharisees. Most of them were unbelieving people. They were not children of the one true God. They were unbelievers who nevertheless were thought of as the most religious people in their communities. Can you imagine that? It is possible for religious tradition to actually mask a heart of hardness and unbelief. As Jesus said to the Pharisees, they washed the outside of the cup, but the inside was dirty. They were like nice clean tombs all white and glistening in the sun on the outside, but you get in, in the inside and they stink. That's true, he said. And it can be true of people today who name the name of Christ 
and who go through certain religious rituals and traditions and they sort of conform outwardly to what their religious community expects, but their hearts haven't been transformed. So Jesus is warning all of His listeners about the danger of allowing tradition to trump revelation from God. But there's a second fundamental issue that he wants to deal with. And he really highlights this beginning in verse 10 and running through verse 19. And that will be our focus this morning. In verses 10 to verse 19, Jesus deals with confusion about the real source of our defilement. Confusion about the real source of our defilement. So I want to preach to you this morning on what truly defiles and what truly purifies. Notice in verse 10, he begins this way. So he's been discussing with the Pharisees and the scribes this delegation from Jerusalem that's been sent up to check out this Nazarite, Nazarene teacher, and uh, they, uh, he's been interacting with them, but now he takes a step back and he's, he, he knows that these people don't really have a heart to hear. He's going to address everyone around him, all of the people. He calls them together and he says, verse 10, notice what he says. Don't just skip over this too quickly. Hear, he says, listen to me and what? And understand. You remember that being a key word? Back in just a few chapters, well, just uh, two chapters ago, back in chapter 13, this word came up again and again and again. Jesus said things like, so many people hear me, they listen to me, but they don't understand. He quoted the prophecy of Isaiah, where God sent Isaiah to preach to people, that, and, and Isaiah's message essentially was, hear me. But God said, they're not going to understand. They're not going to really... They're going to hear, but not hear. They're going to listen, but not listen. They're going to see, but not see. And that's true of so many. What Jesus now is getting at is He says, come, come, hear and understand. Have spiritual comprehension. Remember that this word, this key word, draws on the Old Testament background of the book of Daniel. Daniel revealed things in mysteries in parables. And of course, in chapter 13, Jesus was dealing with people in the context of parables. And what they needed was not just to hear the nice parable, the nice story. They needed to understand the significance of it, the real meaning of it, the end time significance of what he was saying. And, uh, So understanding, what is understanding? I'll say it this way, understanding in this context is the ability to comprehend spiritual things, to comprehend the gospel, to comprehend the end time fulfillment of what was formerly revealed in mystery, that is through visions and dreams and types and foreshadows. Finally, here he is, the one to whom all of those things pointed, Jesus the Messiah. He says, here I am, and they saw him, but they didn't see. They heard him, but they didn't understand. What they needed was to have the spirit of understanding. 
And it is only the Spirit, isn't it? It's only the Spirit Himself who brings us understanding. Praise God, if you have understanding this morning, you're sitting here, you're hearing the Word of God, and, it, and, and your eyes are open to the truth. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Nobody understands the mind of God, the things of the Spirit of God. Just like nobody understands the, the things of man except they have the Spirit of mankind. You can't understand God except you have the Spirit of God. He calls these people to Himself, hear me and understand me. And now He answers the Pharisees' charge with a a basic but a very radical comment by means of another parable. Peter calls it a parable later. Sort of a short, really, illustration. You look at verse 11. Here's the parable. Here is... Jesus' answer, and in particular, his answer that goes below the surface of their question to deal with a second major fundamental issue, and he addresses it by means of a parable. He says, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Now, I want you to notice this, and, and... and if you've read over it quickly, maybe you, maybe you didn't exactly get it, but I think Jesus is going further than their question. There's an interesting sort of shift that's taking place here. He, he's expanded the issue beyond just hand-washing. Now Jesus is talking also about what they eat, okay? which hand-washing is tangentially related, right? They're washing their hands before they eat. That was the issue. But he's dealing with everything that comes into their body, everything that they put in their body, everything that they eat. And of course, that is a little bit of a shift. And and that's significant, I think. Um, He's dealing, in other words, Jesus is now dealing with the dietary laws, right? We know you've heard of kosher food, food that is approved for Jewish consumption because the Old Testament had laws about what you could eat, what you couldn't eat. So he's dealing with the dietary laws, and and he's really dealing with the whole laws about cleanliness and purity before God in in general. Because while God never commanded that every Jew should ceremonially cleanse their hands before eating, he did command the Jews regarding certain foods and... uh, and certain ways to prepare their food. But before the disciples can really grasp this and grapple with this this teaching that Jesus gave by way of a parable, um, the the Pharisees apparently at this point um, just got outraged with him, probably just left, go back to Jerusalem, we're going to report, we've got enough for our report now. (laughs) So we're going to go back and tell what's going on. And the disciples, so there's a sort of parenthesis here where the disciples say, well, the Pharisees are our Jewish leadership. So look at again verse 12. The disciples say, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And he answered, here's his answer. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides. If the blind leads the blind, they'll both fall into a pit. Jesus dismisses 
the importance of the Pharisees with two images. A plant that will be rooted up. Now that's imagery. Some of you are reading the Old Testament and you are in Ezekiel now. Or maybe you're running behind the bus and you're playing catch up and that's okay, right? Or maybe you just get on every so often at a stop and ride for a little while and then hop off or fall off and get back on when you can. That's okay. Just keep going. That's the main thing. Keep going. But if you're reading, you've read all the way now up through Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Or maybe you've read the Old Testament through in years past. And you probably are aware that there are many places in the Old Testament where God pictures the nation of Israel as His planting. He bought some land. He dug it up. He planted Israel in the land. He tended them. And He expected to get good fruit from the, from the harvest. That's the imagery that's used over and over again. Isaiah chapter 5 is an example of this. Many, many passages. But the Pharisees, Jesus says, take a look at the text again. The Pharisees are apparently not God's planting. You notice what he's, how he says it? They're not part of that. Though, in fact, they were Israelites... They did claim to be descendants of Abraham after all, right? This illustrates a basic hermeneutical principle or a basic principle for interpreting and understanding the Bible. And it's everywhere throughout the New Testament. This basic hermeneutical principle is this, that true Israel is not a physical or a national people but Christ Himself. You remember when Jesus was walking through the temple on His way, this was His last night before He was crucified. He was walking with His disciples after the Last Supper. They were passing their way through Jerusalem. They went through the temple on their way to the Mount of Olives. And while they were in the temple, they looked around at all of these um, decorations all over the temple. And what's the temple filled with? Garden imagery. There's, there's vines and there's flowers and even the lampstand is made to look like a tree that's constantly giving forth light from its buds, right? So there's imagery like this everywhere. And because Israel was the garden of God, this was supposed to be the place where everything was renewed back like it was in the Garden of Eden. But Jesus looked up at those walls and He looked at all of that imagery and He said, I am the vine... I'm the true vine. And then he said, everyone who is united to me is part of that vine. They are the people of God. And they will bring forth fruit. And my Father will work in their lives so that they bring forth much fruit. Romans chapter 9 enlarges on this principle. By extension then, all of us who are in Christ, Jew or Gentile, are a part of the one true people of God. We, believers, are, to use the terminology of Paul in Galatians chapter 3, children of Abraham and heirs of the promise. We are God's planting, right? That's a basic hermeneutical principle that we learn from the New Testament itself. Now, 
The Pharisees, though they were outwardly Jews, physically Jews, Jesus said they are not truly God's planting. They're not truly the people of God. They're not real Jews. They're like, I mean, what would you say? I guess Jesus told a parable that helps explain them, right? Jesus, remember Jesus told the story, the guy planted a, his field with wheat, and what did the enemy do? He came by and he sowed it with weeds, and they grew up alongside the wheat. So Jesus says, now every plant that my father did not plant, in the end, it's going to get rooted up. It's exactly what he had said earlier. John chapter 15, Jesus said, every plant that is not connected to me, doesn't bear good fruit, is rooted up and actually cast into fire. So this is a strong dismissal of the Pharisees using this imagery. The second bit of imagery is that he says they're blind. They're blind. Blind leaders of the blind. And of course, this is back in a day when blind people had very little help in this world, were virtually um, dependent on others for everything, certainly not capable to be leaders of us. Pharisees, if you fall, follow the Pharisees, you will also end up in a pit in spiritual destruction, which is just a reminder to us, right, that there are people who out there who are considered to be spiritual leaders who are considered to be teachers in some segment of what calls itself Christianity, who are blind, who are literally blind. We, we do well to be discerning people and not just listen to every person who can get on television and proclaim the Word of God because there are many blind leaders today just like there were in Jesus' day. And if you follow them, you'll end up in destruction. So Jesus says, don't worry about the Pharisees. Let him go. And now he comes back to his illustration. Actually, they bring him back. Um, they send their spokesman, which whom is who is uh, whom? Who's the spokesman for the uh, for the uh, disciples? Usually, it seems like Peter, right? The guy with the big mouth, right? You got to love Peter. And he comes, and we will, <laughs> you know. I speak lovingly of this brother because we will spend eternity together. But he comes, thank God, uh, for the other disciples who are just as lost as he is. And they, he says, uh, Lord, help us understand. What, what is this, this illustration that you're giving, this parable? And he answers them this way. He says, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and it's expelled? which is a very sort of earthy explanation of the alimentary system, I guess. But he says then, verse 18, Now what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. That's what defiles a person. From the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. We've all heard the little phrase, You are what you eat. And for the Jews, that kind of thing had a lot of significance. 
Because here's the way it worked. If you ate food that was unclean, then you became ceremonially unclean, unable to worship God. And, uh, of course, the Old Testament had many commands about what you could eat and how it must be prepared. But beyond that, the Jewish tradition was if you eat with ritually unwashed hands, then you become unclean because you might have touched something that made you unclean and you didn't know it. Jesus dismisses their mere tradition. Jesus does say, though, that it is not just what you, uh, it's not what you eat, it's what comes out of you. And, of course, you could be tainted in the Jewish tradition, not just by what you ate, but by what you came in contact with um, in a number of ways. So if you were, um, if you had a, a loved one die and you had to help prepare the body for burial, you were ceremonially unclean. Why? Because you came into contact with death. You touched a dead body. Or if you had to cut up an animal, um, then you would be uh, unclean. If you had to come into contact with death in any way or disease or decay, uh, if you came into contact with bodily fluids or if you contracted some disease or had some physical deformity, you were unclean. And what was the point of all of that? Why? Because, because God, didn't, God didn't like disabled people? No, it's not that at all. God is merciful. God is full of grace. God, this was all a picture lesson because all of Israel was a picture lesson to show that those who come into communion with God, those who are in the place of God, those who are with God in glory, that there will be no more taint of sin at all, no more brokenness, no more disease, no more death, no more suffering, no none of that. So if you're going to come into the communion with God, if you're going to come into the very presence of God, you can't have any of that and bring that in because God's holiness uh, eliminates all of the effects of sin in the world, all of the taint of sin. Remember I said a couple of weeks ago that there were two different kinds of cleansing in the Old Testament. There was on the one hand cleansing from Guilt, and that took place through the sacrifices, through the offerings, through the animals, through the Day of Atonement. There was also cleansing from sin's taint or sin's effects. And that came to pass through various washings, through isolation, through, through certain food laws that kept them distinct from all of the, um, the sinful uh, nations around them. These ceremonial cleansings were given to Israel, but remember, Israel ultimately pointed to Jesus Himself, right? Are we all on the same page? Israel ultimately points to Jesus Himself. It's like taking a magnifying glass and, you know, taking the sun's rays and bringing them all down to a point that all of Israel pointed to Jesus Christ. He was the true Israelite. He was the seed of Abraham. Jesus fulfilled in Himself these ceremonies, these cleansing rituals in His own crucifixion and in His resurrection. Jesus Christ, friends, 
has cleansed us once and for all from sin's guilt. And one day, even from sin's taint, even from the effects of sin, all of that, we're not waiting, we're not merely waiting for deliverance from the effects of sin. It's already ours. We're waiting for the experience of it, but it's bought by the one single work of Christ when He came into this world and died and was buried and rose again. Jesus Christ has bought for us all of the cleansing for sin. So, now that Jesus Christ has come, there is no more need for the animal sacrifices to take care of the guilt of sin, or for the kosher laws, for the cleansing rituals to take care of the taint of sin. How do we know this? Well, the Lord Jesus right here plants the seeds of that. And later on, the apostles will continue to expound upon it, such as the writer of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapters 8, 9, and 10, he'll explain how that old sacrificial system is passing away because it's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And in this passage, and especially more explicitly in Mark's parallel, if you want the reference to write by this, I would write it next to it. It's Mark 7.19. And in that passage, Mark makes it explicit. He says that in speaking like this, Christ, quote, declared all foods clean. So He Himself is the fulfillment of all of those cleansing rituals from the taint of sin, just like He is the fulfillment of all of the sacrificial rituals to get rid of the guilt of sin. The Old Testament was like pictures. When your kids are little, you sat down and you read them a book. But you didn't dare read them a book without pictures, right? They love pictures. In fact, I remember we had this one book that we would read to our children called Carl. I think that was what it was called. It was about this dog named Carl. Anybody ever read the Carl books to your kids? Nobody did? Okay, well, all right. one person, okay. So this book about Carl, it actually had no words. It was just pictures. And so as a parent, you just sort of made up and told the story based on what was happening in all the pictures. Because kids love pictures. Pictures help. They, they think in pictures. They, they, you know, that's the way, that's what they can interact with. They're not yet ready to read the words and to grapple with the, with the context of the sentence and to understand the meanings of new vocabulary. They need simple. They need pictures. And in the Old Testament, God gave His people pictures to prepare them for the coming of the real thing. He gave them a picture book. And He gave them pictures like animal sacrifices, like food laws, like the cleansing rituals that they went through. All of these things were pictures. But when the real thing comes, you don't need the pictures anymore. Now that you're older, well, maybe you still like a little bit of pictures in your books. Uh, we, we like to gravitate to the internet so we can look at the pictures as well as read a few words, right? But we, we, want, we want to know, we want to learn, we want to grow. And so we read books that are full of words. When you have the real thing, it's like the soldier 
who's away at war and he, he's gone from his sweetheart for a year at a time and he has this one faded, wrinkled up, dog-eared picture of her that every place he goes, he bunks down, he puts this picture up and he looks at that picture before he goes to bed and he thinks about that woman and he remembers how sweet she is. But when he comes home, when he's finally home and he runs and he grabs her into his arms, he doesn't turn around and pull out his picture and begin to stare at his picture again. He looks at his, his sweetheart. He looks at his bride. Why do you need the picture when you have the real thing? And this is what is going on with Christ. He comes and all of these rituals are done away with, not in the fact that they're, they're replaced, but they're fulfilled. They're, this is not replacement theology any more than a butterfly replaces a caterpillar. This is just the fulfillment. This is the, what everything has been growing toward, what it's all been pointing to. That's the way the whole test, the Bible, the Old and New Testament sort of fit together. This is not replacement theology. This is biblical theology. And before I sort of expand in closing on the application here for us, I want to give just a word of warning about this issue very specifically. That is what you put into your mouth, the kinds of foods that you eat, and other related issues. You may not be aware, or you may, <clears throat> that there is a, a growing movement among some segments of Christianity called by various names, but most, mostly by uh, called a, a Hebrew Roots movement or a Hebrew roots awakening where Christians have supposedly awakened to the Hebrew context, the Jewish context of the Messiah, of Yeshua, Jesus the Lord, and believe that Christians, if they're going to really enjoy the fullness of their Christianity, really need to go back and adopt many of those Jewish practices, those Old Testament customs, those ceremonial laws, such as the keeping of the Jewish feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Pentecost, those things, the kosher laws, the eating of food according to the Old Testament law, the worship of the Lord and the keeping of, of the seventh day holy. I'm talking about Saturday, not the first day of the week. I remember we had a Bible study. We did an evangelistic Bible study at our house a couple of years, a few years ago. And uh, we had a lady, a, a very nice lady, a kind lady, but she had been turned on to this Jewish roots movement. And just the way she talked about it was that I never felt so close to God since I have gone back and started all these traditions again. And, and she said, I just, I never realized what I was missing. And I realized now I wasn't really right with God, and she's just on a mission to, to bring everybody back to this or to this. Um, and I want to say a very strong word of warning about this. So maybe this is the first time you've ever heard it. It's just off your radar, but probably you'll meet someone somewhere along this line. And uh, this is, it, I have to say it carefully because an appreciation of the meaning behind those symbols, behind those pictures, is, is certainly helpful for us. Well, I mean, that's the whole New Testament borrows on those pictures to help us understand the full significance of the cross. 
but to require Christians to go back under those, it's almost a kind of a, a modern version of an ancient Judaizing heresy. So it does, it's well for us to take heed to the words of the Scriptures in Colossians chapter 2, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So we have Christ. And uh, to appreciate, to recognize uh, the shadows for what they were is a helpful thing, but not to be brought under their dominion. But I think that beyond that, there is a kind of a broader application here for us. Because Jesus not only denies, now follow me, He not only denies that true defilement comes from outside of us, and particularly in what we eat, but He also insists that our primary trouble comes from where? You got it, from our hearts, from inside of us. Take that for a lesson here. Our primary trouble comes from inside of us. We are sinners to the very core by nature. Out of us, out of our very natures, come evil thoughts. Who in here has not had the experience of having evil thoughts? Out of our hearts, he says, come sexual immorality. You know, the temptation is to say, well, if only I could protect myself more from the evil world out there, I would not have any trouble with sexual immorality. That's not true, if what Jesus says is right. If the problem is deep down in our very hearts, which may explain why rape is such a problem even in Islamic countries where women are covered head to toe. Your heart is inherently evil by nature. There's something wrong at the core of you, deep down inside. Out of your heart comes theft and the selfishness and the covetousness behind it. Out of your heart comes murder, and the anger and the bitterness that lie behind it. Our hearts, he says, are naturally deceitful and proud and foolish. It comes from our hearts. It comes from within, not from outside of us. You know, the temptation is for people to say, this person's not a bad person. He's just got a bad what? environment. He had a bad home. He has bad influences. He grew up in a bad neighborhood. He had bad examples. It's a bad system that's just stacked against him. And all of that may be true. But the fundamental problem, Jesus says, is not what's outside of the person, it's what's inside of the person. No, our very hearts, our very minds, our very natures are corrupt. What you need is not just reform. You need a miracle. You need to call out to God and say, God, my heart is corrupt. Save me from myself. That's what brings you into a true relationship with God. A 
And you know, I think even as believers, now let me talk to you though, to those who are, who are Christians, that even we sometimes subtly slip into this kind of thinking where our greatest driver in how we live and how we think becomes this mindset of protectionism, sheltering ourselves from the evil world around us. And you see this manifest in a number of ways. Not just in the doing of certain things, but in the way we think when we're doing those things and when we're making those choices, such as the decision to homeschool your children. The decision to keep them out of public school and put them into a private school. The decision to move out of the big bad city and out to the pure holy countryside. The, the kind of mindset that begins to think that evil is primarily around us rather than inside of us. So we need to protect us. We need to protect our children from evil music, from evil on TV, from evil on the internet, from evil people in their school, from evil people around them. And if we just do that well enough, then everything will turn out right. And I say, we can all tend to slip into this kind of mindset. Now maybe I'm stepping on toes because, you know, because we have these, we've made these decisions and we've made them in good conscience. And I'm actually not arguing that all of the decisions that you've made about protecting you, yourself and your family from the world and the evil influences of the world, that all of them are wrong. You know we homeschool our children. And we believe that we've made those decisions for God-honoring reasons. I'm talking to a lot of very conservative people here in terms of what you allow into your life. And there are many good reasons for putting your kids into a Christian school or keeping your kids away from certain influences or filtering your internet service in your home. There is a lot of good reasons for all of that. But what I'm saying is this. We've got to be careful of a shift in our thinking to the mindset that our biggest evils are outside of ourselves. And remember that we were born with evil inside. To beware of a kind of sense of moral superiority because, well, we homeschool our children. Or we don't let our kids watch that. Or listen to this. Or be around that influence. Or to beware especially of self-sufficiency. The kind of spirit that says protection alone is going to save my children. These things are mere externals. There is no magic formula for salvation and sanctification for us, for our children, for any of us. Because the problems, you can take, this is why you can take a Christian and stick him in the middle of the desert and put him in a monastery and not let him talk to anybody. And he's still whipping himself saying, oh, what an evil person I am. We carry it with us everywhere we go. Sin doesn't primarily come from outside of us. It comes from inside of us. And we need, must never lose sight of that. 
When we lose sight of that, when we begin to focus only on the externals and protecting ourselves from the big bad world out there, when, and, and, and not saying we do this intentionally, but when our thinking slides that way, then we're in danger of falling. We're really in danger of missing out on the gospel itself and having our children to miss out on the gospel itself. The truth is, shelter equals salvation is not in keeping with our Lord's teaching. It happens, as I mentioned, with parents sheltering their children and that kind of mentality. And what what you see often is this, that outwardly children conform for 18 years. Or at least, you know, maybe 12. (laughs) 13, 14, 15 to 18, those are questionable. But when they turn 18 and they walk away and they say, I want nothing more to do with church, home, and you know, I want nothing more to do with those standards. I want nothing more to do with any of that. Now, that can happen in all sorts of situations, right? So that is beyond, in many ways, beyond our control. But, but this kind of thinking is shocked when that happens. We, we train them right. We kept them from all of these evil influences. No, but what we all have to remember about ourselves is that the greatest evil is not out there, it's in here. And what I need is not protection, I need a miracle, I need a transformation of my heart. So get on your knees every day and pray that God will be merciful to you. Pray that He'd be merciful to your children. Pray and plead with them that they would give their hearts to Him. It's okay, it's it's a wonderful blessing to grow up into a Christian home and be protected from all those things. Don't discount that. But what you need is to be saved. You need a heart transformation, and I do too. That's what this sermon is about. We all need to be pointed again and again to the one who said, I will put my spirit within them. And I will give them a new heart. And I will transform that heart of stone into a heart of flesh. I will write my law upon their hearts. And in Him and in Him only, there's hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please grant to us a heart transformation. Let us be changed from the inside out, O Lord. We pray that for ourselves, for our children, for our grandchildren. Please be merciful, O Lord. Please display Your sovereign goodness. Please pull your, your people out of the miry clay and set them upon the rock that is the Lord Jesus. Please implant within them Your Spirit and give them a heart of flesh, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.